Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Alma, chapter 17. Well, as we came to the end of the previous chapter, Alma chapter 16, and the Ammonihah story had been brought to a close, we then read in the final verses of Alma chapter 16 about Alma and Amulek's ongoing ministry as it carried through the 14th year of the reign of the judges. We would expect then for this story to resume as we begin Alma chapter 17. And in fact, that does seem to be the way that this chapter opens. We find in verse 1 of Alma chapter 17 that Alma is journeying from Gideon to a place that is southward. And now, of course, we can remember from Alma chapters 6 and 7 that Gideon was an important part of Alma's early ministry. So that's what he's doing as Alma chapter 17 opens. But then, something very surprising happens here in verse 1, still as recorded from Alma's perspective. And the word that is used here in verse 1 is astonishment. So Alma is traveling then from the land of Gideon southward uh, to a land, by the way, that we haven't heard of before called Manti. This can remind us that there are undoubtedly more cities within the land of Zarahemla that Alma has been ministering to throughout his mission since he left the judgment seat in Alma chapter 4. But to his astonishment, as it says, he's traveling southward towards the city Manti, and as verse 1 says, he met with the sons of Mosiah, and they were journeying towards the land of Zarahemla. Well, this, of course, is where the storytelling narrative will take a major turn, and we really won't come back to the ministry of Alma until some time later. Uh, We'll get to hear from Alma directly, actually, in Alma 29. That will be the next opportunity we have for that, and that's where he will say, oh, that I were an angel and could have the wish of my heart. So with all that we have read and processed over the past many chapters in the book of Alma, this encounter really jogs our memories a little bit as readers uh, to see this term once again, the sons of Mosiah. Uh, We haven't thought about them for a while. It requires us as readers, using Alma's recent language in Alma 13, to sight our minds forward, or in other words, to fix our minds upon the forepart, or the beginning part of the story, when we first read of these sons of Mosiah in Mosiah chapter 27. This is where we read about specific personalities who were part of this movement, that was described in the previous chapter, Mosiah chapter 26, of a rising generation that had effectively jettisoned the teachings and traditions and even the history of their elders. Uh, Verses 1 through 4 of that chapter told us that, quote, they did not believe the tradition of their fathers. They did not believe what had been said concerning the resurrection of the dead. Neither did they believe concerning the coming of Christ. 
And now, because of their unbelief, they could not understand the word of God, and their hearts were hardened. And they would not be baptized, neither would they join the church. And they were a separate people as to their faith, and remained so ever after, even in their carnal and sinful state, for they would not call upon the Lord their God. So this is the movement that Alma the Younger and the sons of Mosiah were part of. I think it's interesting to wonder, by the way, if Nehor wasn't at the center of that movement, uh, even though we're not actually introduced to him until Alma chapter 1. But perhaps Nehor was actually the figurehead of this movement that was uh, apparently hijacking that universal impulse of this age cohort, of this rising generation. We imagine them as being in their late teens or early 20s. And it's that universal impulse that that this age group has to improve the world uh, that they are just discovering. So there seem to be other influences afoot in Nephite society that could capture the minds and hearts of this young generation and use their enthusiasm to forward the cause of the Antichrist, which is the way that Nehor was described later. So again, this is the moment in the narrative for us as we come to Alma chapter 17, where we can lay the story of Alma's ministry aside for a moment and go back and consider the others in his company that were also visited by the angel in Mosiah chapter 27. And that, of course, was Ammon, Aaron, Omner, and Himni, the sons of Mosiah. We can go then to Mosiah chapter 28 and consider what happened to these sons of Mosiah who did such an audacious thing as to go back into the land of Nephi, the place that Gideon, uh, Limhi, we can remember, and Alma the elder had so recently escaped from. So, as we consider this, we wonder, uh, these sons of Mosiah going back into the land of Nephi, how did they fare? Uh, Are they still alive? Uh, Did they have success with the Lamanites? Did they ever get there in the first place? Uh, Remember now, we found these sons, and, and by the way, These sons were forfeiting the opportunity to rule the entire Nephite nation, beginning with Aaron. So we remember them coming to their father at the beginning of Mosiah chapter 28 and, quote, desiring of him, as verse 1 says, that he would grant unto them that they might with these whom they had selected. So by the way, suggesting that there were actually more than just these four. Go up to the land of Nephi that they might preach the things which they had heard and that they might impart the word of God unto their brethren, the Lamanites. Now, this incident, as Alma chapter 17 is about to tell us, was 14 years ago. So what will commence as we move into this chapter, Alma chapter 17, is a 14-year flashback that will take us back to that amazing moment in Mosiah 28 when these four sons approached their father and asked him if they could go to the land of Nephi. So now we will learn how these sons of Mosiah fared in their mission, and we'll read of many new characters and places as we do so, and this story will take us from Alma chapter 17 to Alma chapter 27, as the superscript to this chapter will tell us. So to put it another way, we will now discover what is happening in the land of Nephi with the sons of Mosiah during the time that Alma was ministering among the Nephites in Zarahemla and in Gideon and in Melech, in Ammonihah, and etc. Before moving to a flyover summary of this chapter, though, I'd like to return for just a moment to the mindset of the rising generation 
that was mentioned in Mosiah chapter 26. Since Alma and the sons of Mosiah's counter-movement against the prevailing philosophical winds of that day is so very applicable to our own. Uh, How did these remarkable young men gain the state of mind and the state of heart that was so markedly different from what we might call the ideological possession of their contemporaries, for whom most, the teachings of King Benjamin were no longer in vogue, as we learned in Mosiah chapter 26. Uh, the, The answer, as is so often the case, seems to begin with repentance. These sons of Mosiah had truly repented. Instead of simply ascribing the problems in the world around them to the incorrect tradition of their fathers, uh, which is the way that it was phrased in Mosiah chapter 26, that's, that's the rhetoric of, of this rising generation, these sons of Mosiah had cleansed their own inner vessel, a phrase that Captain Moroni will later use in his letter to Pehoran. They first got their own house in order, so to speak, as we will read in Alma chapter 17, they had given themselves to much prayer and fasting. So instead of giving way to the secular philosophies of the day, they calibrated themselves to the wisdom and guidance of their Heavenly Father through revelation. Uh, Then we learn that they submitted to His will, and they did so with hearts that were swollen with gratitude. And, as Alma chapter 17 will tell us, they had given themselves to much study of the Scriptures. So at their young age, Rather than embracing the ideology of Nehor in their desire to change the world, which seems to be such a universal and an innate desire, and even an obsession of this age cohort, they had calibrated themselves to the wisdom of Scripture. All of this seemed to lead the sons of Mosiah to a very different M.O. than their young contemporaries. Mosiah chapter 28 told us that these sons of Mosiah Quote, were desirous that salvation should be declared to every creature, for they could not bear that any human soul should perish. Yea, even the very thoughts that any soul should endure endless torment did cause them to quake and tremble. How wonderful, I would add, it is to see the same phenomenon today, a covenant-keeping segment of our rising generation that is following their impulse to change the world by doing it in the Lord's way honoring and magnifying the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, and resembling it, I might add, by cleansing their inner vessel, uh, giving themselves to much prayer and fasting and study of the scriptures, and then following the call to set their beautiful feet on the path to a mission where they will find the good shepherd's lost sheep ministering in love to the one. That's a pattern, by the way, that Elder Bednar has written about recently. Ammon, then, will be our first example of this in this 11-chapter story that we're about to embark upon, as we see how he approaches King Lamoni with the attitude of a servant. It's a really striking thing that we're about to read about. How beautiful, then, will be his feet as he travels among the Lamanites, as he, quote, bringeth good tidings, publishes peace, and bringeth good tidings of good, and publishes the message of salvation among his former enemies, the Lamanites, transforming them through the power of Jesus Christ and converting them, as we will see, into lifelong friends. Well, let's turn now and look at the structure of Alma chapter 17. In verse 1, here's this encounter that we've just talked about, and we can see how after 14 years, Alma is going about his business 
uh, traveling from Gideon to Manti, and to his astonishment, he runs into the sons of Mosiah. I personally think that this encounter is one of the most engaging and interesting and kind of joyous experiences as a reader that we have as we go through the Book of Mormon narrative. Well, so verses 2 through 5 will tell us further about the sons of Mosiah. We'll discover that they were still Alma's brethren in the Lord, and they had had much success in their work over the over those 14 years. And of course, we'll learn all about that. But this then lays our question to rest, because uh, whether we remember it or not, this is a loose end uh, from Mosiah chapter 28. As I mentioned earlier, we wonder, what happened to these sons of Mosiah? Are they still even alive? And if they are, how did things go? Then in verses 6 through 8, the flashback will begin that kind of takes us back to Mosiah chapter 28. And uh, verse 6 will start by saying, Now these were their journeyings, having taken leave of their father. So that kind of takes us right back to Mosiah chapter 28 and allows us to follow their story, whereas uh, previously we followed the story that was taking place in Zarahemla. Now verses 9 through 12 will show us what happened as the sons of Mosiah began to journey towards the land of Nephi. There's no evidence so far in their story that they shrunk in their duty or that they withered under the weight of the prospect of taking the gospel to their enemies. This is the first point at which we we can kind of feel their concern as they approach the borders of the land of Nephi. This is a really, really daunting prospect when we think about it, and so it helps us to see how they handled this. And we will find in verse 9 that they prayed much that the Lord would grant unto them a portion of his spirit to go with them. So we'll talk about this, of course, and we'll see how this is a model for modern-day missionary work as well. In verses 13 through 17, then, the narrative continues, and we'll find that upon arrival at the borders of the land of Nephi, the sons of Mosiah separate at this point. It says in verse 13 that they departed from one another, trusting in the Lord that they should meet again at the close of their harvest. In verse 17, it says, that they separated themselves one from another and went forth among them, meaning among the Lamanites, every man alone. This would give us the impression that something different is happening than the usual pattern, where Alma and his brethren were going without companions as they went their separate ways. Uh, That's what the text would suggest. However, when we move to Alma chapter 21, This same separation is referred to here because um, we begin with the story of Aaron. And in verse 1 of Alma chapter 21, it says, Now when Ammon and his brethren separated themselves in the borders of the land of the Lamanites, behold, Aaron took his journey towards the land which was called by the Lamanites Jerusalem. So that's the direction Aaron went in, and Ammon, as we're about to learn, went in a different direction. But the key here is that in this verse it says, Now when Ammon and his brethren separated themselves. So this could either be read the way that we just have in the narrative, that they truly uh, went alone along their separate ways, or they had brethren with them. I, I prefer to think it's the latter, and the Aaron story certainly supports that. Before this separation takes place, however, we see in verses 18 and 19 that Ammon, and we also learn that Ammon is chief among them, that he blesses his brothers. Uh, before they depart. And then we discover that Alma, or excuse me, Ammon, um, goes to the land of Ishmael. 
as we just learned, we're going to learn in Alma chapter 21 that his brother Aaron is going to go to Jerusalem, which is yet one other city within the land of Nephi. So now we'll focus in on the Ammon story as it's taking place in the land of Ishmael. We'll discover in verses 20 and 21 that as he arrives in Ishmael, he is bound. And that's the custom uh, for any Nephite who enters the boundaries of the land to be bound in this way. So he's bound and he's carried before the king of Ishmael. And he's questioned by the king. Of course, the name of this king is King Lamoni. And we'll discover in verses 22 through 25 that King Lamoni will interrogate Ammon. As he does so, his demeanor changes immediately. He becomes very pleased with Ammon uh, because Ammon wants to be a servant. He's so impressed, of course, that he, he, um, he, it says he would that Ammon should take one of his daughters to wife in verse 24. But what happens here is that Ammon becomes his servant and he settles into this role. Then in verses 26 through 28, we're going to read of Ammon's first experience, uh, kind of his first task, or seems almost like his first day on the job. And actually, it is more specific than that. In verse 26, it says, after he had been in the service of the king three days. So really, this is Ammon's third day on the job as King Lamoni's servant. And so here's the first incident. Um, He and his fellow servants' flocks are scattered. And of course, these are uh, Lamoni's flocks, and they take them to the place of water, as it says in verse 26. And there they encounter other Lamanites, who we could describe as marauders, who scatter their flocks. And at this point, uh, King Lamoni's servants uh, fear for the loss of their life. Uh, Ammon is new on the job, but they are not, and they know what the consequence will be if they return back to King Lamoni having lost his flocks. So at this point, Ammon, in verses 29 through 32, encourages his fellow servants. Uh, He sees an opportunity in all of this, as we will read, and he gathers all the scattered flocks. So this is what happens before we read of this more more infamous uh, incident that we're about to. He gathers all of those flocks and brings them together. Now, in verse 33, and extending through verse 38, we'll see that once these flocks have been gathered again, that these marauders come again and try to scatter Lamoni's flocks. This time, however, Ammon contends with them, and he actually slays six of them with his sling, and he kills their leader with a sword, and then we know most infamously, perhaps, what happens after that. He smites off the arms of all who retaliate. So this is an episode, and we'll talk about this more later, that reflects um, kind of an Old Testament time where a level of violence and retribution in that society was perhaps more normal than it is today. But it's an utterly remarkable story and uh, truly makes us wonder who this Ammon was. Then in the final verse of this chapter, verse 39, we find the servants with Ammon as well, returning to King Lamoni, and they rehearse everything to King Lamoni that has been done. This verse will tell us that they're actually bearing the arms which had been smitten off by the sword of Ammon, and they show them to King Lamoni. We really can't wait as readers at this point to turn the page and see what King Lamoni's reaction is to this utterly remarkable thing that has taken place. So now to return to verse 1. 
And actually, I'll start with the superscript above Alma chapter 17, an account of the sons of Mosiah who rejected their rights to the kingdom for the word of God and went up to the land of Nephi to preach to the Lamanites their sufferings and deliverance according to the record of Alma. So that superscript is presumably written by Mormon himself. Uh, Mormon is taking this, as we can see here, from the record of Alma. So the superscript could possibly have been from Alma, but I think we'd be more safe to guess that Mormon wrote it. And the fact that these sons of Mosiah forfeited their right to the kingship is um, not lost on Mormon, as he provides us with that piece of detail, and shouldn't be lost on us either. It's uh, utterly remarkable. So verse 1 And now, it came to pass that as Alma was journeying from the land of Gideon southward, away to the land of Manti, behold, to his astonishment, he met with the sons of Mosiah, journeying towards the land of Zarahemla. Now here is where we think back to this time when Alma the younger was together with the sons of Mosiah, and they were seen by an angel. Or to adopt Alma's uh, kind of cryptic language, as I mentioned earlier in Alma 13, we're going to cite our minds forward to that incident in late Mosiah. So verse 2, Now these sons of Mosiah were with Alma at the time the angel first appeared unto him. Therefore Alma did rejoice exceedingly to see his brethren. And what added more to his joy, they were still his brethren in the Lord. Yea, and they had waxed strong in the knowledge of the truth. For they were men of a sound understanding, and they had searched the scriptures diligently that they might know the word of God. There, there is a theme of reunion in Scripture. We see it in the Old Testament. When Jacob and Esau come back together and reunite, for example, we see it in the New Testament in the parable of the prodigal son. Um, but it's a theme that runs even deeper, of course, because it's symbolic, ultimately, of our ultimate reunion with the Lord himself in our heavenly home and with all of our loved ones there. So, It's a concept that really resonates with us, and I don't know if there's another reunion story in Scripture that resonates more than this one right here, and uh, how wonderful it is to see that these sons of Mosiah were still Alma's brethren in the Lord. The Book of Mormon Institute manual provides commentary on this bond of friendship that has developed between these brethren, even though they've been apart. So I want to read that. Those who labor in the Lord's vineyard share a bond of love that comes from laboring in the harvest together. This bond is deepened by common experiences of faith and testimony. Elder L. Tom Perry of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles shared a personal example of meeting his first missionary companion after several years had passed. Quote, I had an experience a few years ago of receiving a call from my son Lee. He told me that my first missionary companion was in his neighborhood and he wanted to spend a few minutes with me. We had a special experience of being together after many years of not seeing one another. As missionaries, we were given the opportunity of opening up a new town in Ohio to missionary work. Because of this assignment, we were allowed to labor together for 10 months. He was my trainer, my first companion. It was difficult for me to keep up with him, but as we served together, we drew close together as companions. Our companionship did not end with the 10-month assignment. World War II was raging. And when I returned home, I had only a short time to adjust before I was drafted into missionary service. Excuse me, military service. On my first Sunday in boot camp, I attended an LDS service. I saw the back of a head that was very familiar to me. It was my first missionary companion. We spent most of the next two and a half years together. 
Although circumstances were very different for us in military service, we tried to continue the practices of missionary service. As often as we could, we prayed together. When circumstances allowed, we had scripture study together. We were both set apart as group leaders, and we had again the opportunity to serve and teach together the glorious gospel of our Lord and Savior. We were more successful in the military than we had been as full-time missionaries. Why? Because we were experienced returned missionaries. My visit with my first missionary companion was the last opportunity I had to be with him. He was suffering from an incurable disease and died only a few months later. It was a wonderful experience to relive our missions together and then tell about our lives following our missionary service. We recounted our service in bishoprics, high councils, and stake presidencies. And of course, we bragged about our children and our grandchildren. As we sat and thrilled at the opportunity of being together again, I couldn't help but think of the account in the 17th chapter of the book of Alma. There's, of course, a key connection between the joy of this reunion and all of these brethren still being each other's brethren in the Lord, and the way in which they searched the scriptures diligently that they might know the word of God. As we see in verse 2 and then verse 3, we'll talk about the way that they were given to prayer and fasting and had the spirit of prophecy and revelation. So before we go into verse 3, here first is some commentary also from the Book of Mormon manual about the way in which they studied the scriptures diligently. The sons of Mosiah searched the scriptures as an essential part of their missionary preparation. Likewise, Hiram Smith received counsel from the Lord to prepare for missionary service by first seeking to obtain his word. That's out of Doctrine and Covenants section 11, verses 21 through 22. The missionary handbook, Preach My Gospel, emphasizes the importance of seeking the Holy Ghost. Having a strong desire to learn and putting what we learn into action is key components of effective gospel study. Quote, Your gospel study is most effective when you are taught by the Holy Ghost. Always begin your gospel study by praying for the Holy Ghost to help you learn. He will bring knowledge and conviction that will bless your life and allow you to bless the lives of others. Your faith in Jesus Christ will increase. Your desire to repent and improve will grow. This kind of study prepares you for service, offers solace, resolves problems, and gives you the strength to endure to the end. Successful gospel study requires desire and action. For he that diligently seeketh shall find, and the mysteries of God shall be unfolded unto them by the power of the Holy Ghost, as well as in these times as in times of old. That's from 1 Nephi chapter 10, verse 19. Like Enos, as you hunger to know the words of eternal life, and as you, follow, uh, and as you allow these words to sink deep into your heart, the Holy Ghost will open your mind and heart to greater light and understanding. Learning the gospel is also a process of receiving revelation. In addition, Preach My Gospel recommends the use of a scripture journal as one way to increase the power of your scripture study. By recording your thoughts and impressions while studying your scriptures, you open new avenues of receiving personal revelation. And uh, now this is from Elder Richard G. Scott. A study journal can help you understand, clarify, and remember what you're learning. Oh, excuse me, I'm, I'm still reading from Preach My Gospel here. Elder Richard G. Scott taught, Knowledge carefully recorded is knowledge available in time of need. Spiritually sensitive information should be kept in a sacred place that communicates to the Lord how you treasure it. This practice enhances the likelihood of your receiving further light. 
Review your study journal to recall spiritual experiences, see new insights, and recognize your growth. Your study journal may be a bound journal, a notebook, or a binder. Record and organize your thoughts and impressions in a way that fits how you learn. Develop your own system to easily access key information in the future. Use it often to review, access, and apply what you have learned. Use your study journal to take notes and record impressions. We, we naturally, when we read of this account, of this reunion between Alma and the sons of Mosiah, we want to do as they do and also study the scriptures in the way that they did and also um, to be given to prayer and fasting in the way that they, they were. And so this is a really wonderful uh, piece of instruction from Preach My Gospel that helps us to see how to do that. So verse 3, but this is not all. They had given themselves to much prayer and fasting. Therefore, they had the spirit of prophecy and the spirit of revelation. And when they taught, they taught with power and authority of God. This, too, is from the Book of Mormon Institute manual. Elder M. Russell Ballard of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles illustrated the power of fasting and prayer in the Lord's service with the following story. Some years ago, a faithful convert, Brother George McLaughlin, was called to preside over a small branch of 20 members in Farmingdale, Maine. He was a humble man who drove a milk delivery truck for a living. Through his fasting and earnest prayer, the Spirit taught him what he and the members of his branch needed to do to help the church grow in their area. Through his great faith, constant prayer, and powerful example, he taught his members how to share the gospel. It's a marvelous story, one of the great missionary stories in this dispensation. In just one year, there were 450 convert baptisms in the branch. The next year, there were an additional 200 converts. Uh, Here are some other pieces of commentary that help us to step back and to consider the role of Scripture study in our lives and and why it is so vital in our day. Uh, This from Merrill J. Bateman in a conference talk called Coming Unto Christ. In order to come unto Christ and be perfected in Him, each person needs to receive a testimony of the Lord's words. Some individuals falter because they fail to open the books, others because they read casually. As one would expect, there is a difference between diligent searching or pondering over the scriptures and casual reading. There are certain blessings blessings obtained when one searches the scriptures. As a person studies the words of the Lord and obeys them, he or she draws closer to the Savior and obtains a greater desire to live a righteous life. The power to resist temptation increases and spiritual weaknesses are overcome. Spiritual wounds are healed. And now this from this seminal uh, conference talk by President Ezra Taft Benson called The Book of Mormon, Keystone of Our Religion. He said, It is not just that the Book of Mormon teaches us truth, though it indeed does that. It is not just that the Book of Mormon bears testimony of Christ, though it indeed does that too. But there is something more. There is a power in the book, which will begin to flow into your lives the moment you begin a serious study of the book. You will find greater power to resist temptation. You will find the power to avoid deception. You will find the power to stay on the straight and narrow path. The scriptures are called the words of life, and nowhere is that more true than it is of the Book of Mormon. When you begin to hunger and thirst after those words, you will find life in greater and greater abundance. Now verse 4, and here's where we get the time marker of 14 years. And they had been teaching the word of God for the space of 14 years among the Lamanites, having had much success 
in bringing many to the knowledge of the truth. Yea, by the power of their words, many were brought before the altar of God to call on his name and to confess their sins before him. As we're reading all of this, we're still kind of imagining this, I think, from the perspective of Alma, where he is discovering all of this in their meeting along the road to the land of Manti. He's traveling to the south. The sons of Mosiah are traveling to the north. They meet, and he's learning all of these things. And we as readers, of course, are learning this as well. Now, as we go on, this will kind of change so that we're getting Mormon's perspective of this as editor. And he will tell us in verse 5, Now these are the circumstances which attended them in their journeyings, for they had many afflictions. They did suffer much, both in body and in mind, such as hunger, thirst, and fatigue, and also much labor in the spirit. Now, as we move on in uh, this 11-chapter flashback, uh, this particular verse will act almost as an index to all of the specific experiences that we're about to read of that will chronicle the hunger and the thirst and the fatigue, uh, the, the much suffering both of body and mind of these sons of Mosiah. Before moving further into that, I do want to read this from Joseph Fielding McConkie, where he pulls out this phrase that we see in verse 4. Uh, it can kind of fly by without, we, uh, without us noticing it, uh, where it talks about the sons of Mosiah confessing their sins before God and um, bringing others to a knowledge of the truth and bringing them, as it says, to the altar of God. So here's what um, McConkie says about this. The altar of God is a place of worship, most frequently associated with making sacrifices and entering into or renewing covenants. Always found in temples, altars are a place of the divine presence. Anciently, they were built on raised ground so that there was a ritual ascent as one approached the place of worship. Among the Book of Mormon peoples, they were a place where one called upon God and confessed sins. In the Bible, they are clearly seen as the place from which prayers were to ascend to heaven. I think that imagery can remind us really, too, that as we kneel before God in prayer, we're symbolically uh, kneeling at the altar of God. Now, here's some summarizing commentary from Ogden and Skinner of what we have read so far. Then we'll move into some commentary that uh, come back to this idea in verse 5 that these sons of Mosiah suffered so much. So, first of all, Ogden and Skinner, they say, After 14 years, five friends met again, rejoicing that they were still faithful in the Lord. Now, I think we can understand from what we read in late Mosiah that there are more than just five. There, there must have been others that also went with the sons of Mosiah. We get that impression at the very beginning of Mosiah chapter 28, for example. Nevertheless, Ogden and Skinner continues by saying, Then we have a ten-chapter account of the labors of the sons of Mosiah and what we might call the Southern Lamanite Mission. Now, I've called it 11 because it's uh, if, if we include uh, Alma chapter 17 all the way through Alma chapter 27, it seems to be 11 chapters that we get this account. But it's great how Ogden and Skinner call this the Southern Lamanite Mission as they go down into the land of Nephi. And here they are coming up from the south as Alma is coming down from the north and they meet. These verses describe how to be a great missionary how to receive powerful personal revelation, how to teach with authority, and how to be filled with understanding. We do that by one, search the scriptures diligently, as the text says. Two, 
Do a lot of praying and fasting. 3. Be patient while suffering physical, mental, and emotional trials and afflictions. And 4. Work hard, especially spiritually. Because the five missionaries did all of these things, they became men of sound understanding. They had the spirit of prophecy and revelation. They taught with power and authority. They were good examples to the people, and they had success in bringing many souls to salvation. Now to return to this idea in verse 5, that these sons of Mosiah and Alma, of course, but we're now again following Mormon's narrative perspective here, and we're starting to talk specifically about the sons of Mosiah. This idea that, that they suffered both in body and in mind, and that they had much laboring in the spirit. Elder Maxwell was such a master um, at, at talking about trials and about talking about suffering, and he has a conference talk called Endure It Well, and here's a segment from that talk. So often in life, a deserved blessing is quickly followed by a needed stretching. Spiritual exhilaration may be quickly followed by a vexation or temptation. Were it otherwise, extended spiritual reveries or immunities from adversity might induce in us a regrettable forgetfulness of others in deep need. The sharp side-by-side contrast of the sweet and the bitter is essential until the very end of this brief mortal experience. Meanwhile, even root, and I have to add here, we, we can think about Elder Maxwell's own life here, can't we? Uh, now that he has, has long since passed away, because that indeed uh, was his experience um, as he came to the very end of his life. And he wrote this talk uh, long before he ever had a, a cancer or leukemia diagnosis. Then he continues, Meanwhile, even routine daily life provides sufficient sandpaper to smooth our crustiness and polish our rough edges if we are meek. The Apostle Paul spoke from considerable personal experience when observing that no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. That's Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. You and I are not expected to pretend chastening is pleasant, but we are expected to endure it well. And that's the phrase that's the basis of Elder Maxwell's talk here, and it's taken out of section 121, verse 8. Only afterward is the peaceable fruit of righteousness enjoyed by those who are exercised thereby, also Paul's words from Hebrew 12. But what demanding calisthenics! Moroni said that only after the trial of our faith do we receive certain assurances and blessings. Taking Jesus' yoke upon us really does help us learn of him as we personally experience his special love for us. We also come to appreciate more his meekness and lowliness. Edith Hamilton observed, quote, When love meets no return, the result is suffering. And the greater the love, the greater the suffering. There can be no greater suffering than to love purely and perfectly one who is bent upon evil and self-destruction. That was what God endured at the hands of men. Unquote. Many parents, as Elder Maxwell continues, love and care, but experience unreciprocated love. This is part of coming to know on our small scale what Jesus experienced. Part of enduring well consists of being meek enough amid our suffering to learn from our relevant experiences. Rather than simply passing through these things, they must pass through us and do so in ways which sanctify these experiences for our good. Thereby, our empathy too is enriched and everlasting. Thus, life is carefully designed to produce for us, if we are willing, a harvest of relevant and portable experience— 
but there is such a short growing season. The fields must be worked intensively amid droughts, late springs, and early frosts. For the disobedient and despairing who refuse to plant, plow, or harvest, theirs is not simply a winter of discontent, but a despair for all seasons. The indifferent and lackluster who work only on the surface of life will harvest little. Only for the perspiring and anxiously engaged faithful will the harvest be manyfold. There is another very powerful inducement for us to endure well. President Young said of Jesus, quote, Why should we imagine for one moment that we can be prepared to enter into the kingdom of rest with him and the Father without passing through similar ordeals? Unquote. The Apostle Paul noted how this sacred process produces an exclusive cadre, those who have known the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. That's from Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. These are they who will have the greatest capacity for endless service, joy, and happiness. Now, as we come into verse 6, we'll depart entirely from Alma's perspective, and uh, we'll now get Mormon's abridgment of the record of Alma, which will give us this flashback, uh, this story that spans these 11 chapters of the sons of Mosiah. So verse 6, now these were their journeyings. Having taken leave of their father Mosiah in the first year of the judges, having refused the kingdom which their father was desirous to confer upon them, and also this was the minds of the people. Nevertheless, they departed out of the land of Zarahemla and took their swords and their spears and their bows and their arrows and their slings. And this they did that they might provide food for themselves while in the wilderness. These, of course, can be seen as accoutrements of war. But here, um, it says very specifically that these swords and spears and bows and arrows and slings were that they might provide food for themselves in the wilderness. So an interesting distinction there, since we've read of so much war already between the Lamanites and the Nephites. Verse 8, And thus they departed into the wilderness with their numbers which they had selected to go up to the land of Nephi to preach the word of God unto the Lamanites. So as we can see here, we're just picking right up where we left off in Mosiah chapter 28 and learning more about these four sons of Mosiah. Notice here that the word selected is used yet one more time, and it was in Mosiah chapter 28 verse 1 where it says that the sons of Mosiah approached the king and desired of him that he would grant unto them that they might uh, with those whom they had selected. So again, this gives us the idea that there were others who were with the sons of Mosiah who were their companions, just as Amulek was a companion to Alma as they uh, went in. There, most of them are unnamed, although in the superscript to chapter 21, Mulekai is named as a companion to Aaron. So perhaps there was an analog for Ammon as well as he comes into the land of Ishmael, but he's not mentioned explicitly. So now that these sons of Mosiah have officially launched, we might say, they are now... Uh, traveling to the place where they're going to labor. It's almost as though they are now leaving the MTC and they are arriving in the mission field and the, the, the enormity of what they have taken upon themselves is starting to settle upon them. So that seems to be what's happening here in this section between verses 9 and 12. So verse 9, And it came to pass that they journeyed many days in the wilderness, 
And they fasted much and prayed much that the Lord would grant unto them a portion of his spirit to go with them and abide with them, that they might be an instrument in the hands of God to bring, if it were possible, their brethren the Lamanites to the knowledge of the truth, to the knowledge of the baseness of the traditions of their fathers, which were not correct. So as they carry with them their swords and their their bows and arrows and slings, this is the actual weapon that they want to carry with them in as they confront the Lamanites. They want to do so by bringing them to a knowledge of the truth and, and by them being the instruments instead of these implements of war. And uh, in so doing, they can bring the Lamanites to a knowledge of the truth. So that is their hope. We can see, of course, that a prerequisite to this is that they prayed and fasted uh, for those who didn't have the truth. And this comes from the Book of Mormon Institute manual. President Gordon B. Hinckley counseled every member to work and pray for missionary opportunities. Quote, Let there be cultivated an awareness in every member's heart of his own potential for bringing others to a knowledge of the truth. Let him work at it. Let him pray with great earnestness about it. Elder M. Russell Ballard admonished us to pray for guidance in doing the Lord's work. Quote, In gospel-sharing homes, we pray for guidance for ourselves, and we pray for the physical and spiritual well-being of others. We pray for the people the missionaries are teaching, for our acquaintances, and for those not of our faith. In the gospel-sharing homes of Alma's time, the people would join in fasting and mighty prayer in behalf of the welfare of the souls of those who knew not God. That's from an April conference report or conference talk of Elder Ballard's in the year 2006. In that same um Excuse me, it was in April 2006, but it was in, in the fall, so it was October conference. Elder Don R. Clark wrote this, I have learned that a person does not need to have a church calling, an invitation to help someone, or even good health to become an instrument in God's hands. The prophets and the scriptures teach us how. First of all, we must have love for God's children. When the lawyer asked the Savior, Master, which is the great commandment? The Savior replied, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Joseph F. Smith said, Charity, or love, is the greatest principle in existence. If we can lend a helping hand to the oppressed, if we can aid those who are despondent and in sorrow, if we can uplift and ameliorate the condition of mankind, it is our mission to do it. It is an essential part of our religion to do it. When we feel love for God's children, we are given opportunities to help them in their journey back to His presence. The missionary experiences of the sons of Mosiah also help us understand how to become instruments in God's hands. Quote, And it came to pass that they journeyed many days in the wilderness. We must be willing to journey. The sons of Mosiah were willing to step outside their surroundings and do that which was uncomfortable. Had Ammon not been willing to journey into a foreign land, inhabited by a wild and a hardened and a ferocious people, he never would have found and helped Lamoni and his father, and many Lamanites may have never learned about Jesus Christ. God has asked us to journey, go on missions, accept callings, invite someone to church, or help someone in need. In their pursuit to help their Lamanite brothers, the sons of Mosiah also learned the importance of fasting and prayer. 
They fasted much and prayed much that the Lord would grant unto them a portion of his spirit to go with them and abide with them that they might be an instrument in the hands of God to bring, if it were possible, their brethren, the Lamanites, to the knowledge of the truth. Do we really want to be instruments in God's hands? If so, our desire will permeate our prayers and be the focus of our fasts. Now in this process, as these missionaries are still together on the borders of the land of Nephi, Uh, something really remarkable happens because the Lord visits them and speaks to them. So verse 10, And it came to pass that the Lord did visit them with his Spirit. Uh, That's an important qualifier there. And said unto them, Be comforted. And they were comforted. Uh, Now we get very specific words from the Lord as we go on. But it seems that these came through the mechanism of his Spirit. Uh, It seems that in Scripture we're always more impressed by a supernatural appearance, and that's not foreign to these sons of Mosiah, because they were actually visited by an angel. But I think there's there's no provision for the constant companionship of angels or of supernatural occurrences that we know of. Now, there there is provision for the, the constant ministry of angels, so that's not entirely accurate. But what there most certainly is provision for is the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost, who's a member of the Godhead. So it's nothing to uh, discount uh, this great and really supernal blessing of the gift of the Holy Ghost is never to be underestimated. So the Holy Ghost seems to be visiting them in a very interesting way here. And the voice of the Lord says, Be comforted. And they were comforted. Uh, This must have been a remarkable experience. Verse 11, And the Lord said unto them also, Go forth among the Lamanites thy brethren, and establish my word. Yet ye shall be patient in longsuffering and afflictions, that ye may show forth good examples unto them in me. And I will make an instrument of thee in my hands unto the salvation of many souls. This notion of being an instrument in the hands of God uh, is a theme that will continue as we read uh, the, the ongoing mission of the sons of Mosiah. And uh, Alma will refer to it later as well. But we can notice that this theme and this term was first used earlier in the prayer of these sons of Mosiah. When it says in verse 9 that they had a desire to be an instrument in the hands of God to bring, if it were possible, their brethren, the Lamanites, to a knowledge of the truth. Ogden and Skinner have written that this is a noble ambition for all our missionaries worldwide to fast and pray that the Lord will pour out His Spirit upon the people in the various great cities, to help bring them to a realization of the incorrectness of the traditions of their fathers, and to bring them to a knowledge of the truth. Actually, this is a noble ambition for every member of the church. Again, in verse 11, the Lord tells the sons of Mosiah that ye may show forth good examples unto them in me. Here's some commentary from the Book of Mormon Institute manual on that subject. Ammon and his brethren learned to live in peace with the Lamanites before they were able to share the gospel with them. Elder M. Russell Ballard suggested three important things we can do to be better neighbors to those not of our faith. This, by the way, is out of an October 2001 conference report. First, get to know your neighbors. Learn about their families, their work, their views. Get together with them if they're willing, and do so without being pushy and without any ulterior motives. Friendship should never be offered as a means to an end. It can and should be an end unto itself. Let us cultivate meaningful relationships of mutual trust and understanding with people from different backgrounds and beliefs. Second, I believe it would be good 
if we eliminated a couple of phrases from our vocabulary, non-member and non-Mormon. Such phrases can be demeaning and even belittling. Personally, I don't consider myself to be a non-Catholic or a non-Jew. I'm a Christian. I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That is how I prefer to be identified. For who and what I am as opposed to being identified for what I am not. Let us extend that same courtesy to those who live among us. If a collective description is needed, then neighbors seems to work well in most cases. And third, if neighbors become testy or frustrated because of some disagreement with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or with some law we support for moral reasons, please don't suggest to them, even in a humorous way, that they consider moving someplace else. I cannot comprehend how any member of our church can even think of such a thing. Our pioneer ancestors were driven from place to place by uninformed and intolerant neighbors. They experienced extraordinary hardship and persecution because they thought, acted, and believed differently from others. If our history teaches us nothing else, it should teach us to respect the rights of all people to peacefully coexist one with another. Elder L. Tom Perry illustrated how our example can lead others to draw nearer to the Lord. A 19-year-old missionary would never forget his first day in the mission field, for it taught him a great lesson about using his talents to teach the gospel. He and his senior companion were assigned to open a new city some distance from the mission headquarters. As they arrived in this new city and walked down the street, they passed a church with a minister standing at the front door. As they walked by the church, the minister went in and called to his whole congregation to follow him out into the street. There they followed the missionaries and started calling their names. Then they became more violent and started to throw rocks at them. The young elder was excited about this experience. His first day in the mission field and already he was being stoned, he thought. Then a big rock suddenly hit him squarely in the middle of the back, and his feeling changed to anger. Before entering the mission field, he had been quite a baseball pitcher. And in the flush of anger, he wheeled around, grabbed the first rock he could find on the ground, reared back in his famous pitching pose, and was just ready to let the rock fly at the crowd, when suddenly he realized why he was there. He had not been sent all the way to Brazil to throw rocks at people. He was there to teach them the gospel. But what was he to do with the rock in his hand? If he dropped it to the ground, they would think it a sign of weakness and probably continue to throw rocks at them. Yet, he could not throw it at the crowd. Then he saw a telephone post some distance away. That was the way to save face. He reared back and let the rock fly directly at the telephone post, hitting it squarely in the middle. The people in the crowd took a couple of steps back. They suddenly realized that the rock probably could have hit any one of them right between the eyes. Their mood changed, and instead of throwing rocks at the missionaries, they began to throw them at the telephone post. After this incident, every time the elder went down that street, he was challenged to a rock-throwing contest. The rock-throwing contests led to discussions of the gospel, which led to conversions, which led to the establishment of a branch of the church in that community. Verse 12, And it came to pass that the hearts of the sons of Mosiah, and also those who were with them, took courage to go forth unto the Lamanites to declare unto them the word of God. So that's kind of the end of this incident before uh, they then separate, and, and Alma blesses them before they separate as well. But this seems to be a very important moment for them as they approach the borders of the Lamanites, and they need extra courage uh, before they're able to, to move into that land. Verse 13, And it came to pass, when they had arrived in the borders of the land of the Lamanites, 
that they separated themselves and departed one from another, trusting in the Lord that they should meet again at the close of their harvest, for they supposed that great was the work which they had undertaken. Trusting in the Lord is a key phrase here, and uh, that's really all they had left as they separated one from another was this trust. Richard G. Scott once said, This life is an experience in profound trust. Trust in Jesus Christ. Trust in His teachings. Trust in our capacity as led by the Holy Spirit to obey those teachings for happiness now and for a purposeful, supremely happy, eternal existence. To trust means to obey willingly without knowing the end from the beginning. To produce fruit, your trust in the Lord must be more powerful and enduring than your confidence in your own personal feelings and experience. A wonderfully insightful quote from Elder Scott, and to that I would add that I think uh, as as um, Alma cited our minds forward, to use his phrase again, to the pre-earth life, I, I don't think there's any doubt that at that point we had to have great trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was quite a risk for us to come to earth and lose the presence of God and uh, engage in this plan, which required us to go into this state of separation and probation. Now this from Elder, or excuse me, President Ezra Taft Benson. Yes, men and women who turn their lives over to God will discover that he can make a lot more out of their lives than they can. So thinking again here about trust. He will deepen their joys, expand their vision, quicken their minds, strengthen their muscles, lift their spirits, multiply their blessings, increase their opportunities, comfort their souls, raise up friends and pour out peace. Whoever will lose his life in the service of God will find eternal life. Verse 14, and assuredly it was great. That's referring to the phrase in verse 13 that says they supposed that great was the work for which they had undertaken. And then Mormon confirms this and says, Assuredly, it was a great work. For they had undertaken to preach the word of God to a wild and a hardened and a ferocious people, a people who delighted in murdering the Nephites and robbing and plundering them, and their hearts were set upon riches or upon gold and silver and precious stones. Yet they sought to obtain these things by murdering and plundering that they might not labor for them with their own hands." Thomas Arvaletta has written, From the very beginning, Satan taught Cain the great secret that I may murder and get gain. That's out of Moses chapter 5, verse 31. Then with that philosophy he killed his brother Abel and said, Surely the flocks of my brother falleth into my hands. So with that we can see the continuity uh, in our modern day with, with this idea of uh, groups and organizations uh, who are set upon um, riches and gold and silver, and precious stones, and, and will attain them even by murdering and plundering. And of course, later we'll talk very specifically about getting gain and secret combinations. So this is what the Lamanites were involved in, and it is just no small thing at all. And that's what Mormon is telling us here, I think. Uh, there's a reason that these four sons of Mosiah experienced some trepidation and needed to be comforted in this previous segment that we read. Look at what it is that they're doing, going among the Lamanites, their enemies, a truly wild and hardened and ferocious people. Verse 15, Thus they were a very indolent people, many of whom did worship idols, and the curse of God had fallen upon them because of the traditions of their fathers. Notwithstanding the promises of the Lord were extended unto them on conditions of repentance. That's a loaded statement. We understand that the curse has to do with their access to the covenant. 
And so as these missionaries go among the Lamanites and preach to those who are receptive and minister to those who are receptive, such as Lamoni and his father, this curse will be lifted for them because their access to the covenant will be restored. It really has nothing to do with the marking on their skins. Verse 16, Therefore, this was the cause for which the sons of Mosiah had undertaken the work, that perhaps they might bring them unto repentance, that perhaps they might bring them to know of the plan of redemption. There's that great phrase that Mormon seems to be lifting from Alma's discourse uh, to the people of Ammonihah in Alma chapter 12, plan of redemption, that great plan of redemption. Here is an excerpt from a conference talk by Elder L. Alden Porter, and this was given in October of 1999. His talk was called Our Destiny. He said, The center of the plan is the Lord Jesus Christ. Reject or ignore him, and the great plan of happiness cannot function in your behalf. His life was dedicated in his premortal existence through mortality and even on into the eternal worlds to establishing the Father's plan to our blessing and benefit. The cost to the Master was monumental. Think of the pain of Gethsemane and of his suffering on Calvary. This should give us some concept of the enormous importance of the plan of redemption. Think of an airplane leaving the airport with the complete journey mapped out. The pilots and crew know where they are going, and they won't get off course and fail to reach their destination once in 50,000 times, unless weather or mechanical troubles interfere. Now, imagine another airplane with a captain and crew, but no flight plan. The engines are started, and the plane moves down the runway. Yet, as it begins to climb, the crew doesn't know whether to turn east or to turn west. If you are on that airplane, you will have almost no chance of arriving at your destination. It is clear to each of us that an airplane crew needs a flight plan. So it is with our lives. One cannot make wise, long-range decisions unless one understands that there is purpose here and recognizes that he must understand at least some aspects of the merciful plan of the great Creator. The Lord has given us instructions and commandments to help us fulfill the destiny which He envisions for us. Commandments are best understood after one knows something of the plan. Alma taught this principle when he said, Therefore God gave unto them commandments after having made known unto them the plan of redemption, that they should not do evil, the penalty thereof being a second death, which is an everlasting death as to things pertaining unto righteousness. For on such the plan of redemption could have no power, for the works of justice could not be destroyed according to the supreme goodness of God. And again, that's out of Elder Porter's talk called Our Destiny and refers to Alma chapter 12. Now, coming back to the text, verse 17, Therefore, here's their separation. They separated themselves one from another and went forth among them, every man alone, according to the word and power of God which was given unto him. Now, just mention this one more time, as I did in the flyover summary, that where it says every man alone, I think that can be interpreted literally, but I think it's more likely that it's every son of Mosiah alone with his own companion or companions, and that's evidenced again by Aaron's companion, Mulekai, who shows up later in, in that story in Alma chapter 21. So verse 18, Now Ammon, being the chief among them, or rather he did administer unto them, and he departed from them after having blessed them according to their several stations, having imparted the word of God unto them, and administered unto them before his departure, and thus they took their several journeys throughout the land. Monty S. Nyman 
uh, offered this. Today, all missionaries are set apart and given individual, distinctive blessings. Most missionaries have also had patriarchal blessings, giving individual guidance and promises. These personal guidelines will bring success to each missionary. We see the effectiveness of these requirements in the lives of the sons of Mosiah and those who went with them. Now from this point forward, all the way to Alma chapter 21, our focus will be on Ammon specifically. So verse 19, And Ammon went to the land of Ishmael, the land being called after the sons of Ishmael, who also became Lamanites. So this reminds us then of the family of Ishmael, who joined the family of Lehi in their exodus from Jerusalem to the promised land. And unfortunately, we learned in the text that the sons of Ishmael tended to side with Laman and Lemuel and ultimately became identified as Lamanites. They then would have been founding members or founding parties of this Lamanite nation, and so it would be natural that there would be a land named after Ishmael. Verse 20, And as Ammon entered the land of Ishmael, the Lamanites took him and bound him, as was their custom to bind all the Nephites who fell into their hands and carry them before the king. And thus it was left to the pleasure of the king to slay them, or to retain them in captivity, or to cast them in prison, or to cast them out of his land, according to his will and pleasure. And thus Ammon was carried before the king who was over the land of Ishmael, and his name was Lamoni, and he was a descendant of Ishmael. It's quite interesting here to think about the original Ammon that we read of in the book of Mosiah, who was sent by King Mosiah to the land of Nephi to discover what had become of Zenith and his people. He also comes into the borders of the land, is apprehended and imprisoned, and then is bound and brought before a Lamanite king. Or sorry, uh, brought before a king in the land of the Lamanites, who of course is Limhi. So we've seen that pattern before in the Book of Mormon narrative with another Ammon. And I personally have to wonder if that original Ammon was a great friend of Mosiah and possibly the namesake of his son. So here in verse 21, we get the name of Lamoni. We find that Lamoni himself was a direct descendant of Ishmael, which is a very interesting piece of information. So King Lamoni. Verse 22, And the king inquired of Ammon if it were his desire to dwell in the land among the Lamanites or among his people. That that is even a possibility in Lamoni's mind suggests maybe some precedent for that in the past. That There's obviously some convention here uh, when a Nephite comes into the borders of Lamanite land. They're bound and brought before the king, and then the king decides what to do with them. Verse 23, And Ammon said unto him, Yea, I desire to dwell among this people for a time, and perhaps until the day I die. And it came to pass that King Lamoni was much pleased with Ammon, and caused that his band should be loosed, and he would that Ammon should take one of his daughters to wife. So remember, uh, Lamoni offers his wife, or his daughter, as a wife to Ammon, even before Ammon is offered to be a servant to Lamoni. That has yet to come. He is already so impressed with Ammon that he has done this. Kent Brown has explained this incident by saying it would have been a political coup, of course, for Lamoni to marry his daughter to a Nephite prince. But the issue is more complex than we might appreciate at first. Both men seem to understand that Ammon's new status in the Lamanite realm could be linked to Ammon's former status back home, that of a prince. 
But Ammon refused to allow his royal standing to enter into the discussion. So Brown here is suggesting that King Lamoni is impressed with Ammon for other reasons too, and he may have discovered his identity as the son of the king himself. So that's something really, I think, important to remember here. Ammon is not any anonymous person as he comes to uh, King Lamoni. He is actually, we, we learned earlier that Aaron seemed to be the preferred heir to the throne, but it would still, I think, be accurate to say that Ammon was a possible heir to the throne of the entire Nephite kingdom because he was chief among the sons of Mosiah. So given all of this, uh, verse 25 is even more striking when it says, But Ammon said unto him, Nay, but I will be thy servant. Therefore Ammon became a servant to King Lamoni. And it came to pass that he was set among other servants to watch the flocks of Lamoni according to the custom of the Lamanites. We can really only imagine what would have been going through Lamoni's mind and the people around him as Ammon becomes his servant. And again, he may well have known who Ammon was. The son of the Nephite king has come into his kingdom and has decided to be his servant. Uh, they they obviously would have suspected ulterior motives on Ammon's part, and they must have had a careful eye on him. And Ammon really was going to have to prove his loyalty to King Lamoni and to prove his intention of dwelling among him for a long time. Camille Franck has written how it is that Ammon is a type of the Savior as he plays this role in the kingdom um, of, of Ishmael and, and kind of under Lamoni's leadership. In retrospect, one recognizes that the temptations placed before Ammon were the same as those that would later be offered to Christ in a more enticing manner. Like the Savior, Ammon did not give in to these worldly pleasures. Both the Savior and Ammon had greater missions to accomplish. Ammon was presented gifts that would satisfy the carnal appetite. As Lamoni offered Ammon his daughter in marriage and a life of ease, so Satan made his tempting offer of turning stones to bread to the fasting Christ. Ammon could have ruled among the Lamanites, taking advantage of their ignorance when they thought him to be of God. Or excuse me, when they thought him to be God. We'll read that later in Alma chapter 18, verse 21. Similarly, Christ was presented with the chance to use his power to gain instant popularity and worldly glory. Finally, just as the king of the Lamanites promised Ammon worldly riches, as we'll see later in Alma chapter 20, so did Satan offer the wealth of all the earth if Christ would worship him. Like the Savior, Ammon did not give in to these worldly pleasures. Both the Savior and Ammon had greater missions to accomplish. Now, uh, as I mentioned earlier in our flyover summary, we'll now come into to Alma's third day on the job, so to speak, in verse 26, and he is charged to help his fellow servants with King Lamoni's flocks. So verse 26, And after he had been in the service of the king three days, as he was with the Lamanitish servants going forth with their flocks to the place of water, which was called the waters of Sebus, the water of Sebus, and all the Lamanites drive their flocks thither, that they may have water. Therefore, as Ammon and the servants of the king were driving forth their flocks to this place of water, behold, a certain number of the Lamanites, who had been with their flocks to water, stood and scattered the flocks of Ammon and the servants of the king, and they scattered them insomuch that they fled many ways. We're never given the reason for the antagonism of these other parties that are at the water of Sebus. Maybe it was Ammon's presence that caused them to act in this hostile manner. 
Not sure, but verse 28, Now the servants of the king began to murmur, saying, Now the king will slay us, as he has our brethren, because the flocks were scattered by the wickedness of these men. And they began to weep exceedingly, saying, Behold, our flocks are scattered already. Now they wept because of their fear of being slain. Well, this gives us kind of insight into the culture um, that, that prevailed during this time. And these servants must have been aware of some precedent of other servants who, who had displeased Lamoni, who had been slain for their mistakes. Here, however, is Ammon's reaction to this. Now, when Ammon saw this, his heart was swollen within him for joy. For, said he, I will show forth my power unto these my fellow servants, or the power which is in me in restoring these flocks unto the king, that I may win the hearts of these my fellow servants, that I may lead them to believe in my words. So we might say that Ammon does have ulterior motives when he tells Lamoni that he wants to be a servant and that he wants to dwell among him, but his ulterior motives are entirely pure. He wants to bring these his fellow servants to believe in the words of Christ. McConkie and Millet have written, The servants of the Lord pray and petition the heavens for teaching moments, for those special occasions when the power and goodness of God and His Word can be manifest. The spirit of readiness and receptivity must be had by those outside the faith before the message of truth can be delivered and accepted. Verse 30, And now these were the thoughts of Ammon when he saw the afflictions of those whom he termed to be his brethren. And it came to pass that he flattered them by his words, saying, My brethren, be of good cheer, and let us go in search of the flocks, and we will gather them together and bring them back unto the place of water. And thus we will preserve the flocks unto the king, and he will not slay us. And it came to pass that they went in search of the flocks, and they did follow Ammon. And they rushed forth with much swiftness, and did head the flocks of the king, and did gather them together again to the place of water." Now, this in and of itself seems remarkable enough because it seemed to be a foregone conclusion in the minds of Lamoni's servants that these scattered flocks simply could not be gathered. That didn't seem to be an option to them. So when Ammon proposes it and then is actually able to execute upon that proposition and gather all the flocks together, that's a really remarkable thing that happened. And of course, we, as we look at parallels between Ammon and the Savior himself, we see a striking parallel here of him gathering flocks. So there's kind of a literary layer that's taking place here. But this, of course, is not where the story ends because these antagonists, these marauders, they want to scatter the flocks again. And this time, it's going to be different. So verse 33, And those men again stood to scatter their flocks, again, once they had all been gathered, But Ammon said unto his brethren, Encircle the flocks round about, that they flee not. And I go and contend with these men who do scatter our flocks. So Ammon gives them a role to play, which is interesting. And there must have been enough of these servants to encircle the flocks to to keep them in one. And then Ammon is going to play his role. And he is going to advocate for these other servants, again as a type of the Savior, and then contend against their adversary and ultimately put their adversary uh, in its proper place, which is also a scriptural teaching of the role of the ultimate role of the Savior in his relationship with our adversary. Hugh Nibley offers this commentary on this incident in his teachings of the Book of Mormon. How could the Lamanites get away with that? 
didn't the king have enough men to protect them if this happened regularly? Well, for one thing, the Lamanites played the game for sport. It was more than meat that they were after, for they delighted in the destruction of their brethren, and for this cause they stood to scatter the flocks of the king. So there Nibli is giving us one possible motive behind this raid or, or the way in which they, uh, the, these fellow Lamanites were attacking the flocks of King Lamoni. They thought it was great sport. The Arabs have a saying, if we cease Gaza, we will cease to live. A Gaza is a raid. Our word raid is from the Arabic Gaza. They must raid or life isn't worth living. Life is raiding. He knocked six of them out with his sling. Of course, this is a teaser to what we're about to read. And cut off the arms of others as they raised their clubs, but he only contended with the leader to death. After that, the winning party or team brought back the trophies to the king, bearing the arms which had been smitten off by the sword of Ammon. By now, it should be clear that we are dealing with a sort of game, a regular practice following certain rules. This becomes apparent when a few days later, the very men who had stood at the waters of Sebus and scattered the flocks mingled freely and openly with the crowd of people. Uh, we, we see this in Alma chapter 19, verse 21. Uh, the Lamanites that were gathered at the palace, they were the ones that scattered the king's flocks and got the king's followers executed by law according to the game. So some fascinating insight there by Nibley. Verse 34, Therefore they did as Ammon commanded them, and he went forth and stood to contend with those who stood by the waters of Sebus, and they were in number not a few. So although we've just kind of read a spoiler to the story from Nibley's commentary, we can step back and see that the, the servants, again, who Ammon is with, have surrounded the flock to keep them in one place. Now Alma is going to contend with these, which is completely audacious. And again, as a type of the Savior, he's facing an adversary who is a number, not a few, yet he is uh, the only one standing up to them. Verse 35, Therefore they did not fear Ammon, for they supposed that one of their men could slay him according to their pleasure. For they knew not that the Lord had promised Mosiah that he would deliver his sons out of their hands. Neither did they know anything concerning the Lord. Therefore they delighted in the destruction of their brethren, and for this cause they stood to scatter the flocks of the king. So we can think of that Old Testament incident where it says that they that be with us are more than they that be with against us, or more than they that be against us. These Lamanites are seeing what is most apparent and practical here, which is that they are They are many, and Ammon is one, and in fact, any one of these Lamanites felt that they could have taken care of Ammon in this instance, which also suggests that Ammon may have been a little bit less Freebergian than we often conceive of him. He may have looked fairly plain to them and not imposing enough that they wouldn't have thought that any one of them could destroy him. But Mormon is reminding us, just as in that story of Elisha in the Old Testament, that there's another layer, there's a spiritual layer, there's something else going on here that makes these apparent um, poor odds uh, not what they appear to be, Um, because the truth is that the Lord had promised Mosiah that he would deliver his sons out of the hands of the Lamanites. So verse 36, but Ammon stood forth. And began to cast stones at them with his sling. Yea, with mighty power he did sling stones amongst them. And thus he slew a certain number of them, insomuch that they began to be astonished at his power. 
Nevertheless, they were angry because of the slain of their brethren, and they were determined that he should fall. Therefore, seeing that they could not hit him with their stones, they came forth with clubs to slay him. But behold, every man that lifted his club to smite Ammon, he smote off their arms with his sword, for he did withstand their blows by smiting their arms with the edge of his sword, insomuch that they began to be astonished and began to flee before him. Yea, and they were not few in number, and he caused them to flee by the strength of his arm. There's something very symbolic here happening as well with arms. So many scriptures talk about the strength of of the arm. Uh, This is from Alonzo Gaskell, who said, In antiquity, the arm invoked ideas of power or strength, uh, both human and divine. And he has several references there. Occasionally, the scriptures mention righteous men as God's emissaries on earth, and in so doing, state metaphorically that their arms symbolize God's arm. Verse 38, Now six of them had fallen by the sling, but he slew none, save it were their leader, with his sword, and he smote off as many of their arms as were lifted against him, and they were not a few. So what an incident. Ammon ends up slaying seven people, seven Lamanites. This, of course, is assuming that those who had fallen by Ammon's sling were actually killed by Ammon's sling. So if that's the case then this is the tally that Mormon is giving us here. And their, their leader was among those that he slew. Then this detail in verse 39. And when he had driven them afar off, he returned, and they watered their flocks, and returned them to the pasture of the king. And then went in unto the king, bearing the arms which had been smitten off by the sword of Ammon, of those who sought to slay him. And they were carried in unto the king for a testimony of the things which they had done. So Ammon has done something here that is seemingly superhuman. And in fact, that probably is a pretty good descriptor of what it is that Alma has done here. We are anxious then to move to Alma chapter 18 and find out how Lamoni responds to this. And we'll find out, of course, that Ammon is not even among the servants at this point when they present these arms to Lamoni he is still following through with the job that he is charged with. Before ending with this chapter, however, and moving into Alma chapter 18, I'd like to read a little bit more commentary on this utterly remarkable incident. First, this from Ogden and Skinner. What follows are excerpts from the first pages of Ammon's missionary journal. Verse 24 notes that Ammon made quite a first impression on Lamoni, the king, that he would want Ammon to marry one of his daughters. Ammon's approach to missionary work was simple and effective. The first thing he told the king was, I will be thy servant. In other words, he was willing to serve. While serving, he would show forth God's power in order to win some hearts and lead them to believe in his words. Armed with the power of God and the Lord's promise of protection given through Mosiah, Ammon smote off the arms of not a few of the sheep rustlers. They could not hit Ammon with their stones and began to be astonished at the strength of Ammon's arm. The Lord arranged through this episode a brilliant teaching opportunity, beginning with the number one man in the kingdom and his household. Ammon helped convert a king and through him a people. Of course, that forecasts what it is that we'll read about in future chapters. Thomas Arvaleta has written this, Ammon's miraculous protection paralleled the protection offered to the sons of Helaman. Both accounts illustrate the Lord's fulfillment of his promise of divine deliverance. A very interesting connection here by Valletta. 
especially since the sons of Helaman were really the sons of these people that Alma is about to, to bring into the fold and rescue. Valetta continues, Speaking of the stripling warriors, one writer observed, and this writer, by the way, is Douglas Bassett, Their faith in their mother's words echoed the same courage that Ammon displayed at the waters of Sebus against impossible odds. Just like the stripling warriors, Ammon faced the Lamanites armed with little more than the promise to a righteous parent. Here finally is some commentary from John Welch, and he has co-authored this piece with John Lundquist called Ammon and the Cutting Off the Arms of the Enemies, and and they'll provide us with some insights into why this took place, uh, such a shocking uh, and violent thing. Uh, The practice of cutting off the arms or other other body parts of enemies, specifically as a testimony of the conquest of victims, is attested in the ancient Near East. On the decorated gates of Shalmaneser III, Assyrian troops are showing cutting off the heads, feet, and hands of vanquished enemies. This practice seems related to that of the astounded servants of King Lamoni, who took the arms that had been cut off by Ammon into the king as a testimony of what Ammon had done. There may be several reasons behind this widespread phenomenon in the ancient world, ranging throughout the Near East and Egypt. First, there was a need to obtain an accurate count of the dead. Military officers tended to exaggerate their conquests for self-aggrandizement and for political gain. Thus, a precise statistic was necessary to avoid misrepresentation. Similarly, Ammon, or his companions, was scrupulous to present precise evidence so that no one could be accused of overstating his feat. Second, (laughs) and no pun intended or play on words, I guess, with feet. Second, there was a need for mercenary soldiers to be paid, and they were often rewarded based on the number of victims they had killed. Ammon, of course, had no interest in receiving compensation for his loyal service to King Lamoni, but the fact that the evidence was presented to the king, which could have entitled him to payment, heightens all the more the fact that Ammon sought no recognition or reward. Other reasons for the practice may have included the need to identify the dead. Thus, body parts were usually selected that were somehow unique to the victims. Taking an arm may also have had symbolic significance in punishing thieves who had misappropriated property by hand. Such became a common punishment for thieves in the Muslim world, although Jewish jurisprudence came to avoid any bodily mutilation. Finally, an often heard threat in the Near East today is that of vowing to cut down any arms raised against a person. Similarly, as many of their arms as were lifted against Ammon were smitten off, which is how it read in verse 28 of this chapter. Well, as we can see then, we began Alma chapter 17 from the perspective of Alma, and it almost seemed as though we were just going to read more about his missionary journey. But now that uh, we're at the end of this chapter, we can see that something else entirely is well underway. And it's this flashback that takes us 14 years back to the journey of the sons of Mosiah as they went into the land of Nephi. And of course, now as we focus in even more specifically in on the story of Ammon in the land of Ishmael and uh, his developing relationship with King Lamoni, which we'll read about in subsequent chapters. So this brings us to the end of Alma chapter 17. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. 
Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives and, most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.